Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You're opening a precious book in your hands. Amen. Many have desired to have a book such as you have. Many have desired to be able to read it for themselves such as you are able. Many have desired to hear it preached as you are going to hear and have heard. May the Lord bless us. And may we be thankful for the privileges that we have. We are blessed abundantly. Amen. I'm excited and thankful to be your pastor, your servant, to bring you the Word of God. Is there a greater privilege on earth than to share the words of the living God, the words of His, the commandment of His lips and the words of His mouth to you from His precious Word, the Bible? I'd like to remind you as I conclude today my, my study of why I believe the Bible or why I know God wrote the Bible or why I am a Christian, as we conclude that study today, I want to show you what I'm doing. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 gives me my job description in three short words. It's preach the word. Amen. Preach the word. I do not... Preaching is not someone entertaining you. It's not someone sharing their dreams with you or their thoughts with you. It's someone getting up and opening up the Word of God to you. Amen. Preach the Word. Amen. And what I'm doing in this series of messages is showing you how important the Word of God is and proving to you, hopefully to the satisfaction of your souls, that God wrote the Bible. Amen. And that it is truly the only holy book on earth. If God wrote it, it is the only holy book because it doesn't allow any competitors. Amen. All you have to do is open its pages a few times to find out that if it doesn't speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Right. So my job is to make the word of God precious to you and to open it to you so that you gain understanding from it. That's my purpose. Preaching is not an art form of trying to have a pleasant sound. It's teaching. And so I want to convey to you thoughts and proofs that will lift up the Word of God so that you'll love it more than ever before. Our memory verses for this week are wonderful. Job 23, 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now that is an exalted opinion of the Word of God. And I want all of you to have an exalted opinion of the Word of God. Right. We were born into Christian families. We were born into a so-called Christian nation. But we need to have established for the satisfaction of our souls the Bible was truly written by the Creator God. Yes. That's what I'm trying to accomplish with you. The other verse, Psalm 19.10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Amen. Precious verses about the Bible. Do you love the Bible? Amen. I do not worship a book. However, the God that I worship and His Son Jesus Christ is only known through a book. Right. The book is very important. I do not merely, I do not at all kiss it. As they do in so many churches today, this book will be lifted up by the two hands of a helper and kissed. It's like the kiss of Judas. That's right. Because they'll kiss its cover, but they will not open it 
and read it and follow its precepts. So I do not kiss it for you this morning, but I tell you I want to kiss it. And I want to lift it up. And I want to put it before you and show you its splendor and how glorious the Bible is because it's through the Word of God that we know God and come to learn about Him. And understanding enters our heart and we understand life and death and eternal life. Our origin, God Himself, salvation, sin, and all the other questions that cannot be answered apart from the Word of God. Right. It's wonderful indeed. You know, you can open this book, this book you hold in your hands right now. You open it, and you come, you say, what, what are the opening words of this good book going to be? Once upon a time, in the beginning, Amen. God created. In the beginning, God. Wow. I mean, if, if you're a born-again child of God, just those first four words are moving. Yep. Have, do you all know what I'm... Have you ever sat down and just opened up to the first chapter? Yep. In the beginning, God. Yes, that's what we believe. Amen. Praise the Lord. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, there was God. Right. He is the first cause of everything else that flows from Him. In the beginning, God created. We read down through there where light came from, where darkness came from, water, sky, land, trees, herbs, plants, animals, stars, moon, and what they're for, and what man's to do with them, man's to use them and have dominion over them, and then where man came from. Can you believe that you have a book that tells us all that? And it's not Cosmos by Carl Sagan. It's the Bible. Amen. It's not asking you to believe some far-fetched hallucinatory theory by some idiot who thinks that order and design and beauty came out of an explosion of matter. Right. It is so well laid out. You start out with God in the beginning, creation, the origin of man, where we got our wives from, and that marriage wasn't something cavemen thought up 35 thousand years ago but something god established Amen. and we just keep on reading and it is so precious but then we read about sin and all of a sudden the suffering that the poor little buddhist can't figure out we know the origin of it brethren do you understand you can't even read for more than five minutes and you're answering the perplexities of the universe right where does suffering come from we did not like the way God gave us a perfect earth. And so we rebelled against him and suffering and death came from it. Every woman that's facing childbirth and has to think about the pains and consequences of conception reads about her lot and her case right in the first three chapters of the Bible. Then a man, when he goes to work and he works as hard as he can, he comes home and he looks in his checkbook and finds out that the thorns and the nettles have choked it out. He realizes Genesis chapter 3 describes me too. Right. I work as hard as I can and I, can, I can't get ahead. Precious death. Where did death come from? If this explosion was good enough to create life, why did it bring death? Why do all things have to die? See, they don't know how to deal with that. They don't know how to answer that. They know that all things die, but they do not know how to answer that. You know the answer to that. Yep. Andrew, can you believe it, what you have in your Bible? 
The answer, where, de- where did death come from? You know where death came from. We brought it on ourselves. Because this great God said, you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're going to bring death on you because I'm going to judge you with death and all of your descendants. And I want to tell you, every time we go to a funeral home and every time we look in a casket, every time you pass a cemetery, look out there. You know what all those stones are saying? The Bible is true. The Bible is true. We haven't even got out of the first three chapters, and there's 1,189 of them. You haven't even read for 10 minutes yet. And look at the answers you're getting. And so sensible and so sound and so powerful and so concisely written and so beautifully written. Amen. We see marriage and we see sin. We see conception. We see death. We see condemnation. But brethren, there's also a little promise in there. There's a little prophecy in there. You're still not out of the first three chapters. Right. A man's coming. The seed of the woman. A man is coming that will deliver his people from their sins. And he is going to take that serpent that ruined our first parents and crush his head like a bird's egg. And all he is going to be able to do is scratch the heel of that man that's coming in the first three chapters. And they write volumes, 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 shelves of volumes. And they can't answer any of these questions. And we've got it done in 10 minutes. Do you love the Bible or not? Amen. It's got all the answers. You keep on reading. You read a few more chapters and you find out why we have the Grand Canyon. There was a flood. You you read a few more chapters and you find out why every civilization, they're not very civilized, but every group of people or tribe on earth has some oral tradition about a flood. Because there it is in the Bible and it's described. But the great God saw a faithful man and had mercy on him and he rode it out in a boat. That's why we made it through the flood that destroyed everything else that had life and breath. Because God had mercy and put him in an ark. We keep on reading and we find out why there's so many languages. Because we tried to build a tower because we wouldn't disperse as God commanded us to disperse and fill the earth. And so God had to judge us with different languages to separate us. Wow! What answers we're getting. You can't learn these things in sociology, Philip. Oh, the poor son. He's taking sociology. Do you think think he's being taught from the first ten chapters? of? Do you know how much you can learn? Do you know what I've just covered? Why do men kill each other? Sin. Cain killed his brother. Murder started right off. Genesis chapter 4. You haven't read 12 minutes yet. And you already know where evil came from. And that God's offended with it. And that God judges it, and he drowned the whole earth because of it. And where the languages came from. Why are there so many different nations? Why do they all speak such different languages? I mean, there's a big difference between the English alphabet and the Chinese alphabet. Ever taken taken a moment to compare the two? The difference is enormous. Keep on reading. We we see some obituaries. Wow. Wow. This book even has obituaries. It tells us how long men live. They lived a long time. And we keep on reading. We read about that God has personal relationships with some of these men. Right. Like Abraham. He comes down and he meets with Abraham. And Abraham worships him. And Abraham is blessed by him. And he gives Abraham promises. And we just keep on reading. And we find about God having a personal relationship with a whole nation. 
coming down and meeting with them and talking through Moses to them, talking to them until they couldn't stand to hear him anymore because he was rather frightening. And we read and we go through, we, we see the history of nations and the history of Israel. And we come to some poetic sections of the Bible where we have spiritual statements made about a man's soul in its relationship to God and its troubles in this life and how God comforts it and secures it. And we have a love song and we have a book of philosophy and we have a book of parental fatherly advice to sons on how to be a wise young man. All in the Bible. Right. Incredible book. And we keep progressing through that. We run into the prophets and you say, oh no, the prophet. Oh yes, the prophets. Amen. They lift up God and warn of judgment for sin. But every now and then, just when you think you're going to despair, there's a little verse that sounds something like this. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Right. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Amen. and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Wow! A virgin having a son and his name being called God with us. Isaiah 7.14 and, you keep, and you, you keep getting promises like that of this man that's coming. Those promises have been interspersed all the way through this history of God's dealings with men and all the troubles of mankind. But there's this Savior coming. And then we get to the New Testament. We read about the life of a man who was born the supposed son of a carpenter named Joseph who lived in Judea in a little town called Nazareth. And he grew up and he lived and he, he spoke and he taught and his teachings were unbelievable. No one had ever heard things like he taught. No man spoke like he spoke. No man lived like he lived. And he was born of a virgin. His mother did not know how in the world she was going to conceive him. And God just said, I'll take care of that. Right. And I, the Bible goes on. You read four different accounts of his life. And then that man chooses some messengers to go out and tell them about him. Tell the world about him. That he has resurrect, been resurrected from the dead. And so there's hope for mankind that all we see around us is our parents and our grandparents dying off and we know we're going to die. And there's hope because there's a resurrection Amen. and it's all in the Bible. And we keep progressing and we're told how we can please that God and worship him and he doesn't hardly require anything. He doesn't need a big building. He doesn't need fancy or intricate ceremonies. He just wants us to come together Read his word, learn his word, sing his praise, pray to him, and he'll bless us and he'll be with us and he'll take us to heaven when we die. Right. And he's coming for us. Amen. That that Lord Jesus Christ is now that man, that son of the so-called carpenter, is now seated at the right hand of God and he's ruling with the rod of iron. He's breaking the nations of this earth into pieces and he's in complete control of everything. But he's going to let some temptations arise. And from the last book of the Bible, we see the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ coming to persecute that church. And they're tortured, and they lose their lives, but they never lose their faith. Amen. And then we culminate at the end of it with an incredible drama being played out in heaven as that glorious Redeemer comes and delivers us all out of this earth. There'll be no more death, no more crying, no more night, no more pain, no more fear, because we'll be in the presence of God forevermore, and it's all taught in this book. Amen. And we let it lay. We let it lie on our nightstands and in our houses 
And we don't read it enough. It's precious, brethren. It's precious. And it's all true, and it's all written by God, and it's the only holy book on earth. Last Sunday, I finished up as we came to the Lord's table by looking at the doctrine of salvation that it teaches. What a glorious doctrine it is. We're not looking for a harem in the sky like the Muslims. We're not looking for our own planet to populate like the Mormons. We're not looking for nirvana where we can be extinguished from having existence at all like the Buddhists. We're looking for a heaven where we get to be treated like the sons of God forever and ever and inherit God and enjoy Him for eternity Amen. with unspeakable blessings that we cannot describe to the pitiful things that we enjoy down here. The doctrine of salvation to me is enough. Well, each one of these just about are enough by themselves to prove that God wrote the Bible. Let's go to a new one this morning. Jeremiah, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Let me read you a few verses from Jeremiah 23. This is point number 17 or proof number 17, why I believe the Bible. And this proof is because of its uniqueness, because it's so different from other books. To be unique is to be different. And the Bible is so different. It separates itself from all the other writings of men. There's so many books. You, you, you look now at the Library of Congress in the United States, they can't keep up anymore. It's just huge, the number of books there are. Yet the Bible's different from all of them. Right. Jeremiah chapter 23, let's just hear what the Lord has to say about other works and other thoughts and other words. Beginning at verse 28. Jeremiah 23, 28, the prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Amen. What is the chaff to the wheat, Amen. saith the Lord? Now, he doesn't have much respect for the New York Times bestseller, does he? Nope. What is the chaff to the wheat, <laughs> saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lateness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord." God's word is profitable, and it's uniquely different. It's like a fire and a hammer that breaks in pieces the rocks. It is the wheat as compared to the chaff. When you put wheat down and grind it under the wheels or the grinding stone, you end up with two things. The wheat that's heavy and of substance, and the light chaff that was its worthless hull blows off into the wind. What is the wheat to the chaff? Or what is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? They're so different. The Bible is unique. There's only one holy book in the earth. It's the Bible. All other books are so inferior to it. And we know that God wrote the Bible because of its unique differences from all the writings of men. Listen to that. Listen, just think with me. I want to lift up the word of God. And if you go away today, loving the Bible more, wanting to read it more, believing that God wrote it more and wanting to obey it more, I win. You win. And the Lord is praised. Amen. That's what we're here for. The Bible does not have any prejudice, bigotry, tradition, or superstition in it as all the writings of men have. 
all the writings of men, you can see their slant sliding through in the words. Even when they write history, there is no history book that is untainted of the man's perspective and preference for the way he wants history to be. Except one. We have a book written by Jews, yet it condemns the Jews in Israel more than any other group. When's the last time you read a book like that? Written by a Mormon, condemning the Mormons more than any other group. Written by a Muslim, condemning Islam more than any other group. And yet the whole Bible is written by Jews, and it condemns the Jews in Israel more than any other group. Over and over and over again, it talks about God judging them, and God judging them righteously for their sins. We have a book that's written by Jews, yet it finishes by rejecting Israel's national culture as inferior. Wow! Now that's different from the Koran. I mean, the Koran is simply a book to promote 7th century Arabia. Right. You have a book written by Jews, and yet when, it, when you come to the end of the book, the conclusion is our national culture is inferior, and it's temporary, and it's passing away. Find me a book written like that. Men don't write like that. They're always wanting to push their particular culture or nation. We have a book written by Jews, yet it finishes by rejecting Israel's traditional religion as inadequate and weak and beggarly, written by Jews. Ever read the book of Hebrews? Do you know who's writing the book of Hebrews? Do you know to whom the book is written? It's a Jew writing to Jews, telling them that our religion, our traditional religion, received by our fathers that we've practiced for 2,000 years is inferior and has passed away. And the new one doesn't look at all like the old one, and it involves the Gentiles. Show me a book like that. <laughs> the Lord be praised. Amen. The Bible was written by God. Men don't write like that. Men get so nationalistically minded, they can't see the sins of their own nations. Because they're so loyal to their cause. But these Jews were loyal to only one thing, the Spirit of God that spoke within them. And they put the words down on paper, even though that it meant the dissolution of their nation, their culture, and their religion. Wow. Written by Jews, yet it promises God's greatest blessings on the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. It said that the house of David would be rebuilt. Yes, it does say that. But they had to admit that it was going to be rebuilt with Gentiles and that God had cast off his people, which he had been with for 2,000 years. It's a unique book. The Bible has rigid integrity without coloring by the writers. You know, you've got 40 different writers, but when you read the Bible, you don't see their personal preferences for anything coming through. It's always this one message consistent from all 40 writers. God is exalted. Spiritual things are more important, and there is no natural preference or, or opinions or traditions or superstition coming through. Right. And you read any other writings of men, especially when you get 40 authors. Now, remember, you've got to get 40 books. 40 books. Aren't some of them going to let it slide through? You're going to be able to see that's the author's opinion. None. And it all matches up with one whole Bible, with one message. 
the, the writers of this book, the Bible is unique because the writers of this book hold themselves to a stricter standard than their hearers. Now that is different. Old Muhammad, now so I'll get to this later today sometime. Old Muhammad, he said that a Muslim can have up to four wives. But now Muhammad got a special dispensation so he could have as many as he wanted. Right. But the Bible, do you know what it says? Church members can have as many as they want. Don't, don't get alarmed, folks. It's illegal in our country. It's illegal in our country. And it would be going against God's ideal. It's right. not what God planned. It's not what God intended. But the ministry is very specifically limited to be the husband of one wife. And the greatest minister of the New Testament, who's the example for all other ministers and saints to follow, had none. Right. Wow! Now that's a difference. When you've got the man who wrote the New Testament not having a wife at all, and saying anyone that preaches to the saints of Jesus Christ can only have one, that's a, big, that's a tighter restriction on the ministry than the hearers of the Word of God. So different from other holy books who always find little loopholes for themselves so that they can enjoy the bigger and better things. You know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't limit your use of wine in the New Testament except to say that drunkenness is a sin. You, the hearers of the Word of God. But as you enter the ministry, a deacon is not to be given to much wine. Then as you become a bishop, a, de- a bishop is not to be given to wine. Look at those differences. The grades of responsibility that the ministry is held to by the Word of God. As a, that's a unique book, because most books that are written by men are providing loopholes or reasons why the author of the book gets to have a few exceptional clauses in there for his own benefit. The Bible is a unique book because it has so many martyrs willing to give their lives for its possession or distribution. Even a small section of the Bible, they would be willing to die for it. Even though there was no advantage they gained in an earthly way. They were not trying to evangelize or conquer another nation. They were not trying to uphold a national religion. They were not promoting a cultural influence in the world. They just wanted the Word of God and they died for it. It's a unique book. You know, if we had a bestsellers list or a best book list based on how many have died for the book, where would the Bible be? Way up there by itself because of the men and women that have died for it, brethren. The Bible is unique because it's inexhaustible. When you read the Bible and you read a passage a hundred times, I don't know if you, I'm, I'm telling you from personal experience and from reading and talking to other ministers, the Bible is inexhaustible. Amen. You can read a section of the Bible a hundred times, and the 101st time, even if it was shortly after the 100th or the 99th time, you will find something new in it that will amaze you right. and bless you. The book is inexhaustible. There's only one being that's inexhaustible. Amen. You know, when I get done talking to you, you can put a box around my words because that's all that there are, and that's about all that they meant. That's about all that I could imagine that they could mean. But when God puts his words down, they are so exceeding broad, and they are so full, because they were written by the divine mind, and the divine mind is part of the divine spirit that we know is God. There is only one God. I don't even like using the words divine mind, but I hope you all know what I mean. From his will came the word of God as he spoke these words, and they're inexhaustible. 
When you read the Bible, you continue to see new things, precious things, the depth of things. What you thought was 10 feet deep, you read it again, and you find that it's 12 feet deep. What you thought was at one carat, you look at it again, and it's a carat and a half. And brethren, I'll tell you something, you go back next week and look at it more closely, you'll find that it's two carats because the Bible is inexhaustible. After you've ripped through the best of the classics, what do you want to do if you're a slow, if you... You know, if your reading comprehension is not up to snuff and you need to read it three or four times, what happens on the fifth time? Pretty boring. You've got it all. But you read the Bible, read it a hundred times. There's verses that you've read a hundred times, two hundred times, and there's still more to be gleaned from those verses. The Bible is special. It's unique, which shows that it's the Word of God because it's written by the infinite God who can open things up to a degree that we cannot ever plumb, fully plumb their deaths. The Bible is different. Men have studied the Bible for decades, and they still find it fresh and exciting every time they get the chance to close off the world and open its pages and read it. Why is that true? Because there is so much depth in the words, because the words are from the living God. The Bible is special. The Bible has a perennial appeal to all ages in all generations. Now, let's think about that for a minute. When they write a book, they pick what age group they're going after, and they can only write it in one generation. And if it's a classic, it may endure a few. But how can there be a book that fascinates children and challenges the oldest and wisest and most studied possible? How can there be one book that does it both? And many times in the same passages. Tell me about it. Find me another book like that, that children love to read. And yet men who've spent their whole lives studying it still enjoy studying it. The Bible is so different. It's enjoyed by the young and the old. It's enjoyed by the educated and the ignorant. It's enjoyed by the successful and the poor. Kings, I read a few testimonies to you a week or two ago. I didn't read those to fill up space. I wanted you to hear the opinions of kings. And we know our opinion of the Bible How can there be a book that appeals to both so well? Jew and Gentile, ancient and modern. The modern man can read the Bible and find his answers there, as well as the ancient man. How can it address all generations with the same force? How can the Bible, you know, things have changed in the world. Many things have changed. How can the Bible address people that lived in the year 200, as well as address us who live in the year 2001? as well as those that lived in 1854 B.C. Wow, what a book it is. What a book. It was written by God. That's why it's able to do that. You know, the Bible contains history. But why do history lovers find so much solace in its poetry? It's a unique book. It contains poetry. But when you find someone that loves poetry, why do they find so many blessings in the history section? The Bible's unique. No matter what your preference is for literary style, the Bible has them all. Songs. I opened this morning with Deuteronomy chapter 32. A song. Quite a song. No matter what you like in the way of literary style, there are parts of the Bible that will appeal to you that are the opposite of what you prefer in literary style because in the words are conveyed 
a revelation from God to your soul. Now, the natural man doesn't know what I'm talking about. He might look at it simply for its literary style. And so he would go to the sections that he appreciates the most by their literary appeal. We can go to the sections that we like the least from a literary appeal and find there incredible blessings for our soul. The Bible is a unique book because God wrote it. Why is a Jewish book loved so much by Gentiles? Why do Gentiles get into reading the intricate day-to-day -day life of a Jewish nation that existed 3,500 years ago? Why do we want to know the history of the Israelites when we're Gentiles? What about the Bible is so unique? How can fishermen write words that appeal to kings? Because God wrote the Bible. That's why. God wrote it. Why is a bloody religious book so appealing to sanitized 21st century Americans? <clears throat> it is a bloody book. There's blood covering this book from beginning to end, and lots of blood. Why do sanitized 21st century Americans love such a bloody religious book? Because God wrote it, and it appeals to our souls. Oh, there's so many other questions that could be asked. The Bible's unique. I want to show you now, from turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Bible was written by God because of its power. The Bible changes lives. When they hear it preached and when they read it, when they've been born again, of course they have to be born again first. I've already covered that point a lot earlier in this study. But if they've been born again, they might be like Cornelius, not knowing many things that they ought to be doing, and they hear the word of God, and it matches up with what's in their soul that was put there by God, and their lives change. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Paul said, For this cause also thank we God, without ceasing. I have, I have become very pressed in my spirit, and convicted that we are not thankful enough for the truth that God, the truth that, not the truth, period, the truth that God has chosen us out of this world and adopted us as his sons and given us this revelation and put a desire in our heart for it so that we are Christians meeting in this hotel room this day. All of it is an incredible blessing that will blow your senses if you try to sit down and reason through it statistically. It is overwhelming. Why? If the Bible is true, if the God of heaven is what the Bible describes him to be, and who the Bible describes him to be, and men are as depraved and as wicked as they are described in the Bible, and heaven is a reality, and that the evidence of eternal life is what we believe it to be from the pages of the Bible, and you put all those things together and realize that we are the sons of God with heaven waiting for us. A reservation has been made there for us. It is an overwhelming blessing. Amen. And we get so caught up in the goofy little pursuits of this life. To think that God has chosen us and written our names in the book of life and adopted us and given us his truth and opened up our hearts to receive it like the heart of Lydia. It is overwhelming because he's only done it for a precious few that we can read about and that we can witness in the earth. It's wonderful. We ought to be thankful. Amen. And I chased that little rabbit because of these words. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. 
Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God works. You know, the Gideons, even though they might be misled in certain steps of their program, and they're using false translations of the Bible these days in certain places, their cause is good. Their intent was noble. There were men whose lives were changed by the word of God. And they were successful men with financial means at their disposal. So do you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to get a Bible, a King James Bible, the Word of God, into every hotel room in America. Right. And then the world. That's a noble desire for men who've had their lives changed. They want others to read. The, and they have testimonials galore of people in despair on a hotel bed, maybe with a needle in their arm. See the book and open the book. And because God has put in their souls a love for truth and there's hope there, but it's not opened yet to their understanding. They read hope in the Bible. Right. And it meets up with what's in their soul. And they're brought to an understanding and it changes lives. It effectually worketh also in you that believe. We're not going to take an offering this morning for the Gideons. But... The Word of God effectually works. And one of its, its, one of its evidences, and I, didn't, I just said that to make you think about it. Their cause was to get the Word of God out. They were spreading the Word of God. They weren't being selective in the Word of God. I get sick of seeing John 3.16 in the end zones of football statements. They weren't selective. They wanted people to be able, be able to read all 31,165 of those verses and read it in the King James Bible. Now, I like that. And it's because there were some men whose lives were changed by the Word of God. I'll tell you one thing, Cornelius' life was changed after his neighbors and friends saw him go underwater in a burial with his clothes on by another Jew. He wouldn't have known that without the Bible, and everything that followed that was from the Bible. It effectually worketh in you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is a wonderful verse. Look at the effect it had on the Thessalonians. Back to chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what the rest of the Christian world thought about the Thessalonians. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That is a testimony that the Thessalonians had worldwide, that their lives had been totally changed. They got rid of their idols, they turned to the living God, and now their whole life's pursuit was to wait for the Son of God from heaven. Amen. This past week, I've studied many, many, many hours for this series of messages that I've brought you. A couple hundred hours. But I have read so much of the testimony of the first couple of centuries about Christians. Right. And some of those emperors writing about the Christians demanding that they be treated fairly because in their relationship with the Christians, all they saw were a people that had a faith that they did not. Listen, I have read some amazing testimonies. They have a faith that we don't have. And all they're doing is waiting for this man, Jesus, who they call Christ. They get together early in the morning and they want to read from their holy book. You know, these men didn't understand. But everything they said about the Christians was just wonderful to read. 
how that it had changed their lives, and they're not a threat to our empire. Now, there were men who wanted to make them a threat, make them a scapegoat like Nero, and burn them in his gardens as torches because he hated Christians. But there were other emperors that were, wanted them to be treated fairly because right. they, no, they were good and noble and faithful citizens. And look at you read about the Thessalonians. And that's a testimony they had worldwide. So it was in Rome. Remember Romans chapter 1? Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The Bible is written by God because of its power to change lives. Listen. Why is Islam one of the fastest growing religions in the world? Because they put a copy of the Quran in every hotel room and men, when they're in despair, pick it up and find hope? Sorry, that isn't the way it's done. Islam is growing so fast for two reasons. If I had four wives and didn't believe in contraception, I'd have a lot of kids too. Second reason, they evangelize at the point of a sword. It's not because in their holy book are found the answers for men of other nations. It's, be, it's not because in their holy book are found the answers to life's perplexing problems. It's because they evangelize militarily and persecute any opposition to their religion in any country where they get any political power. Right. And then, of course, you practice polygamy, and there's going to be lots of, you know, Osama bin Laden. How many brothers and sisters did he have? Any of you? No? 52. 52. That's, that's been publicized all over the news. 52 siblings. That's easy to grow a religion fast that way. The Quran isn't even read for understanding in the way that we read the Bible. Right. The Quran is chanted, recited, and intoned out loud. It's not to be read silently. The Quran is not to be read silently. It is to be recited enchanted in their mosques. It's not to be translated into any other language, although it has been. Any translation of the Quran is considered just a interpretation. The only real book, the only, the only real holy book is the one written in Arabic to, an, to a Muslim. Do you know what? The very concept of revival, the word revival, the concept of revival, where did it come from? The Bible. The Bible came from the, 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 word revival, the word revival, the concept of revival, the changing of lives came from the Bible. When God's word is preached, it changes lives. I don't mean changing lives by just having a different ceremonial form. I mean changing lives from being naturally minded to being spiritually minded. I mean changing lives from being morally depraved to being morally righteous. It changes lives. The Word of God, it's power. You know, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 13. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they glorified the Word of the Lord. The Gentiles were converted. These pagans were converted. Remember, we studied through the book of Acts to see that when Paul preached the Word of God, it changed lives in Acts chapter 13. Spiritual change. I can tell you this today. You want to prove my point? Go home. Get down on your knees in a very prayerful attitude and a soul committed to God. Tell Him that you want to open His Bible and have it change your life. Confess your sins and humble yourself before the great God that created you and has sent a Savior for you and has regenerated you and open that Bible and it will change your life today. Amen. 
You cannot go to the Word of God in a prayerful, spiritual attitude and not come away with a blessing because it works effectually in you that believe. And that'll be your experience if you'll simply try it. You know, that's the appeal that the lawyer Philip Morrow made with Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was a skeptic. Philip Morrow was a great attorney that argued before the Supreme Court of the United States. He loved the King James Bible. He wrote books to defend it. He holds our (coughs) prophetical position probably closer than any other single man that we know about in many ways. But that man, when he went to Thomas Edison, he he wanted to convert Thomas Edison to trust the living God. The man was a skeptic. And so he reasoned with Thomas Edison that as you know certain things by your experience in your laboratory that you cannot fully express or prove to others until you actually recreate it in your laboratory, try the Bible. And the reason, if you try the Bible, because the Bible is a book of faith, you have to come to the Bible with faith. But if you come to, remember what it said, it effectually worketh in you that Believe. believe, come to the Bible with faith, it'll change your life. We don't read of any Thomas Edison doing anything like that. doesn't matter. Philip Morrow loved the truth and wrote about it, and we're thankful for him. We're thankful for what he did in the works of chronology, prophecy, and defending the King James Bible way back. Amen. You know, it's pitiful when you've got to take a book and kiss it, when you've got to take a book and chant it, when you've got to take a book and intone it, recite it. That's like stone kissing. It's all ceremonial and superstitious. But we have a book that when you open its pages, you're not looking at the print or kissing the print. You're looking at the words that the print conveys, and you read the words, and it's a voice from God speaking to your soul, and it'll change you if you approach the Bible in a prayerful, submissive attitude to God. The Bible is written by God because of its power. It changes men's lives. The last point I'll make this morning is because of its opposition. The Bible describes a personal and violent devil as the God of this world. And all you have to do is look around a little bit and realize that there is a force for evil in this universe. (laughs) Men know that. They just don't know what to call it or where it comes from or how it originated or where it is today. But we know all that, don't we? Because the Bible tells us from the very third chapter of the Bible, we read about a creature named Satan, the devil, that old serpent that came to our first parents. There is a personal force for evil in the universe And he's in this world. The Bible says that. And we're able to witness it by seeing great outbursts of evil and persecution of good people and good things. Even men can see that. That there's a force for evil in the world. They just don't know how to get rid of it or what to do about it. We have the answer for that because it's in the Bible. But see, it's more than just knowing the answer for that. That's proof right there. Because the Bible identifies this source of evil and explains how it operates and, and the effect of him in the world. But more than that, the Bible tells us that this personal devil hates God, his son Jesus Christ, and his word. So, if God has written a book, we are going to find extraordinary opposition to that book. And do we see that in the world? We can prove the Bible to be written by God because of the devilish animosity against the Bible. I mentioned to you last Sunday or the Sunday before... If those of you that are in college, if you stand up and you quote from the Koran, you will be esteemed a person of understanding and wide learning. If you stand up and quote the Bible without any reference to science, principles, uh, natural reasoning at all, just plain Bible, 
This is how we ought to do it because the Bible says you will be laughed out of class. You will be laughed out of class. If you get up and say, well, here's the solution for murder. The Bible says, he that sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. That settles it for me. You're a nutcase. You're a religious fanatic. But if you come to class with long hair, you haven't showered in a month, and you got a robe on, shave part of your head, leave a little strand sticking out of the shaved part, pierce yourself in 12 places, paint yourself in four places, and then you quote from the Hindu Vedas, you'll be esteemed a thinker. A thinker. Look at that man. Watch him go. His thoughts are so deep. They're so deep, I cannot plumb their depths. In fact, I didn't even understand a thing that he said. Can you help me? I'm serious. Listen, go home, plug in Buddhist book and read. You will come back tonight and say, thank you for being our pastor because you tell the truth and you shoot it straight. You would not believe what they call writing. I'm going I'm to read you a little bit tonight. Just hold on. We've got to get to it tonight. Because of its opposition. How in the world can a book like this, that has all the evidence that I've given so far about it, have so much hated opposition against it when it's used in public as an answer for the dilemmas of men? Why the opposition? Where does it come from? Why is it so devilish? Why is it so ferocious, right. even in our own country? Because there's a devil. There's a force for evil. The Bible identifies it, and his animosity is against this book, no other book. This is the book that's been burned more than any other book in the history of the world. Burned. Men have been pulled up out of the ground 40 years after they were dead. I mentioned this before also. And burned because they dared translate this book into another language. Someone with a great influence in this world hates the Bible. And the Bible tells us about him. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 10. Acts 13 and verse 10. I'm almost done. I know it's warm in here again. If I could make it 60, I would. So be thankful that it's 75. <laughs> Acts 13 and verse 10. Look at the Apostle Paul. When does, when's his first tri- evangelistic trip? What chapter does it start with? Oh, no. Acts 13. Acts 13. He has just left his home church. He's just starting to preach. And he runs into this man named Elamas in verse 8 who's a sorcerer. Now, if a man's a sorcerer, he is a working partner with the devil. Okay. And so he, according to verse 8, this Elamas the sorcerer, for so was his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And so here's a rhetorical condemnation of this man who is attempting to withstand the word of God. He does not want the word of God coming into this territory where Sergius Paulus the deputy of the country might be converted. And, and there's a, Paul has not even got his feet wet yet, and the devil is out to stop him. Right. And so it is with the Word of God. Everywhere we look, they hate the Bible. You stand up and you t- listen, 
I picked one of the easier things as my example just a few minutes ago, capital punishment. You want to get real down and dirty and get into some other subjects like what the Bible says about sodomy or what the Bible says about marriage and the role of women and child training. And we could go on and on and on about musical instruments in a New Testament church, about what it says about Catholicism, and on and on we could go. You get up and you get up and let your trumpet sound and just use the Word of God. No natural reasoning, no principles, no explanations, just the Word of God. Let the Word of God sound from your trumpet and see what they do to your trumpet. They'll cut your tongue out. I love arguing points like this. All you have to do, you should know it. And if you don't know it, you can go out and test me to see if I'm telling you the truth. Just go out there and open your trumpet up in a public place about the Word of God. America in recent years has enacted hate legislation. I keep referring to that because to me, it is just a tool of the devil. Right. A tool of the devil. They have protected every perversion imaginable, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Now you got to hire them. Now you got to marry them. Now you got to rent to them. Now you got to do this to them and that to them. They'll protect every perversion known, they'll protect every pagan religion. Stand up for the Word of God and be counted for it. And you'll find out how much they still hate. They hate Bible-believing Christians who love righteousness and hate sin. Hollywood finds its easiest target for ridicule to be a white male that works every day, who has a wife and tries to train his children and reads a King James Bible. That is the target of ridicule. Bible fanatics or women who are holy women that read the Bible and who sing songs who sing hymns. They're fanatics. They're old-timers. They're Neanderthal. They're outdated. They're ridiculous. They're foolish. Why? Where does this vicious hatred come for Bible-believing Christians when, for, to a great degree, this country was built on believing the Bible? And the Bible was one of our first textbooks in schools. And it was, it was honored and exalted by our, our early presidents and early Supreme Court rulings. Why so much hatred against the Bible? Because God wrote the Bible, and evidence, number 19, is because of its opposition. The opposition of the devil showing such hatred against one book over all other books proves that it must have been written by God. And he's trying to get rid of it. May the Lord bless us to look at this Bible. We've looked at so many different aspects of it, brethren. You know, this morning I started out by wanting to read to you a song in it. Then I went and showed you what's in the first three chapters. And we went all the way to the end of the book and what's in store for us as the saints of God. And everything that's in between is precious. Amen. And if you don't know it yet, if you haven't experienced it the way that I've described to you, go home, confess your sins, humble yourself before the Lord God and come to him. I am small and despised. Use those words. Order my ways in your commandments. Use those words. I don't like telling people what words to use, but they're found in Psalm 119. And humble yourself before God and ask for him to give you a blessing from his word. Shut out all distractions and with a pure, single heart, come to the word of God. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It'll work effectually in your life. It'll work effectually in your life. It'll empower your new man. Your new man will rejoice at what you're doing. You'll get excited about the word of God. You'll want to live a more righteous life. You'll love holiness and you'll hate sin. You've got to go to it the way I described. And if you do, you'll find that it effectually worketh in you that believe. I'm thankful that I have you brethren. 
as, as my friends, as my brothers, as my sisters, as my flock, as a congregation here, because the word of God's effectually worked in you that believe. Amen. And I want it to work in us more effectually right. and more and to bear more fruit in our lives. That's my goal. That's why I'm preaching this morning. It's what I've, everything that I've said is for the cause that you'll walk out of here loving the word of God more and committing yourself to walk according to its precepts. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be honored by a few faithful in this world that have the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.